Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 51. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have your word that proclaims of your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your long-suffering, your faithfulness, all the things that make our hearts sing. We know you to be just and righteous and holy and perfect in every way. Powerful, almighty, wise, all wise, and present. Thank you that you're with us. Help us tonight that we would allow the truth of your word to so encourage us that we would leave here ready to do what you have for us tonight, tomorrow, and until we meet again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you were doing something foolish, like donuts in a parking lot. And as you're doing these donuts, your car spins out of control, and you sideswipe a car whose owner you know. Imagine that they didn't see it take place. And they didn't even come running out to see what happened because they didn't hear it. And you know that you have to go up to their house, knock on their door, and tell them what happened. Of course, you might start to think of how you can blame your wife or come up with this grandiose story about how a sweet little bunny rabbit jumped in your pathway and you swerved, narrowly avoiding it, sparing its life, and thus the accident took place. But that's not you. You're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. On your way to the door, you're thinking about the personality and character of the owner of this car that you have to talk to. If they're abrasive, you are just wishing to run away and have them think it was a hit and run by a stranger and hope they don't notice that you have a matching sideswiped car to theirs. But no, again, you're not going to do this. You're cringing the whole way there. On the other hand, if you have another understanding of that person, this person, instead of being an abrasive human, they're, they're kind and gracious. Of course, you're still going to walk up to their door with your proverbial tail between your legs, but you have more confidence that they're not going to try to make you feel worse than you already do about a difficult situation. When we approach our God, what is our sense of who he is. What do you know of him and how he will deal with you in your sin? We have before us a text of scripture that we will study for at least two or three Wednesdays when I have the opportunity to be in the pulpit. Psalm 51 we know to be a confession of David. Now, we're familiar with the background of this psalm. It takes place after Nathan the prophet comes to David and presents the, the parable to him about a, a rich man who has a guest come into town and he steals his poor neighbor's little lamb, sacrifices it that he might present his friend with something to eat instead of using his own plentiful uh, flock. And you'll remember Nathan said, what should be done to such a person? And David was indignant and he says all these things. And then you'll remember the, the finger. The finger. <laughs> and, it, and it sounds best in the King James English. Thou art the man. <laughs> 
You remember this. Well, what was the parable about? Well, we know about David's background. David, rather than going out to war with his troops, as kings do at that time, he stayed home, sent others to go do his bidding. And while he stayed home where he should not have been, he looked out a window or out from his roof and saw on another roof someone bathing. You remember her name? Bathsheba. And you know how the rest of that story goes. It's not a story. You know how that history goes. And you know that consequent to that sight and the um, immoral activity, the, the adulterous relationship he involved himself, and the, the new baby that was to be born. You'll remember what happened with Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, how David had him killed. We're not talking about a small series of bad choices we're not talking about a small series of white lies. We're talking about some serious, serious immoral behavior on David's behalf. It is bad. What I want for us to do this evening, in the few minutes we have together, is we're going to spend a few minutes considering verse 1 and noting three Hebrew words. Listen carefully. Three Hebrew words that will reaffirm our confident expectation of how God deals kindly with his people. First of all, and we'll notice this in verse 1, God deals graciously with his people. That's our first character trait of God. God deals graciously with his people. Starting in verse 1, it says... Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. And so here's David's plea. His plea for God's mercy, and we're going to see this word unfold before us by looking at a number of passages of Scripture. His plea is in accordance, not with some hopeful expectation, but this plea for God's mercy is in accordance with God's very nature, as we will notice. The word mercy there is the Hebrew word chanan. It's a good word, chanan. Two N's, or nuns. and two chanan. This is used numerous times in our Old Testament scriptures. And it's a beautiful word. It's very helpful to us. And I want for us to look at a number of places in which it's used. First of all, Genesis 33. Genesis 33. David cries out to God and says, Have mercy on me. In Genesis 33, it's used twice. Once in verse 5 and once in verse 11. The Bible says in Genesis 33, 5, And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the woman and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has, will you say the next word with me? Graciously given your servant. The word graciously is the Hebrew term chenan. Look down at verse 11. Please accept my blessing, that is, 
brought to you because God has dealt, say it with me, graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. So here Jacob is speaking about God's blessing, God's favor, and he uses the same word that David uses in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, and it's translated graciously. Look a little further with me now at Exodus 33. Exodus 33. There's some beautiful words we have the opportunity to meditate on tonight. I know that we will be encouraged by these truths because it's telling us, not about us, it's telling us about our God. In verse 19 of Exodus 33, it says, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name. Listen carefully. The Lord. I will proclaim to you before me my name, the Lord. And I will be, what? Gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He talks about himself. I'm going to come forth and I'm going to demonstrate who I am. And one of the things that God tells us is that he has this way of demonstrating graciousness. And that term gracious is the Hebrew term chanan. Look a little further now at Numbers, Numbers chapter 6. The priestly blessing is what we're going to look at here just for a moment. The ironic blessing. He says, beginning in verse 22, we're going to see this concept about how they would bless one another. It says in verse 22 of number 6, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be what? Gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. The concept there in verse 25, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is who God is. God deals graciously with his people. Look now at a number of passages. We're going to do this rather succinctly, all in the Psalms now. Take a look at Psalm 4. And what I want you to notice about all these references, we're going to look at one, two, three, four references in the Psalms. And I want you to notice what ties these things together in addition to the Hebrew term chanan, which means gracious. Each one of these verses is in the context of distress. Distress. Okay, keep this in mind. Distress. In our distress, how does God deal with us? In Psalm 4 and verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Listen carefully. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And so in his distress, he's asking God to demonstrate his graciousness. Look at chapter 6 or Psalm 6 and verse 2. He says, God, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Be gracious to me. Chanan. Look a little further now at Psalm 9 and verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates 
of death. He, he's talking about the way God deals with him, and, and he's, he's asking the Lord to be who he is. This is why we learn about who he is. Theology is important, folks. Learning God's character and nature helps us to call upon him in accordance with truth. We, we call upon him in accordance with what we know about him from the scriptures. Look at Psalm 25 now. Psalm 25 and verse 16. David again is crying out in verse 16. He says, turn to me, look at me, turn this way and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. David calls on the Lord in accordance with what he knows to be true about him. And he uses this beautifully rich term, have mercy upon me, O Lord. Be gracious to me, O Lord. This is who he is. David is in distress in Psalm 51 due to his sin. How do we know he's in distress? Well, you remember later on in Psalm 51, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's in deep distress over his own sinfulness and he calls out for God's gracious favor. This favor in this context can be seen flowing, flowing from two other characteristics of God's nature. I want you to think about this. He first starts off and says, God, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. And then he says, according to and according to. Look in verse 51 again. Uh, uh, chapter, Psalm 51 and verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And so he uses these two character traits of God that, that, that issue forth this graciousness. So you can also almost see in this sentence, this verse, and it's not universal because you can see it in other orders in other places, but if you were to, to get a, a mental picture, what you'd see is God's mercy and God's steadfast love are the foundation, and then from that flow forth this graciousness. From God's faithfulness and from God's mercy flows a gracious favor. And so Paul, uh, David says, be gracious to me. God deals graciously with his people. Secondly, God deals faithfully, faithfully with his people. And this is that second character trait that we see of God in verse 1. According to your steadfast love. The Hebrew term here means... Mercy. It means loyalty. As I've got a long list here. It means faithfulness. It means love. It means favor. But above all things, if you really want to isolate and boil it down, you want to extract the, the greatest meaning out of this word that you possibly can, and you really want to understand it, this word means some of you already know where I'm headed. Steadfast covenant loyalty. 
It's the Hebrew term chesed. Sometimes I say chesed because it just comes out that way, but it's, it's chesed. Chesed. The, the, the E's are the same. <laughs> chesed. It means God, in a steadfast way, in an unwavering way, in an unchanging way, in an undiminished way, stays loyal to his people. Ladies and gentlemen, is that good news? How do you know you're one of his? You know Christ. God's spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are his child. His spirit cries out in you and through you. Abba, Father. We recognize this relationship that we have with him. And God tells us he doesn't waver in that relationship. This is... This is great news. Listen, I'm going to go through a list of things. We're going to turn to a couple of passages. In fact, I'm going to have you turn to one right now. Exodus 34. When you get there, I want you to really just park your mind. Don't read the verse because we're going to get to it. Exodus 34. And I'm I'm going to make some references that I think will, again, encourage us and help us to really appreciate God's nature as faithful. God's hesed is seen in Genesis 24 in providing Rebekah for Isaac on behalf of Abraham's servant on behalf of Abraham. Did you catch that? God's steadfast covenant loyalty reaches down to the nitty-gritty of life where he provides for Abraham through his servant, for Isaac, Rebekah. Steadfast covenant loyalty gets down to the nitty-gritty of life. God's hesed is seen in Genesis 39 in Joseph's life when God gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God uses the word chesed, God's faithfulness. To raise Joseph up when he felt constantly down. When everyone that loved him, loved him, turned on him. God's hesed is seen in leading those whom he redeemed from Egypt into his holy abode. That's what it says in Exodus 15.13. Now we're in Exodus 34. We already read the end of chapter 33. You'll remember we, we saw that God says, I'm going to go before you and I'm going to tell you that I'm the Lord and I'm gracious to who I'm gracious and I'm merciful to who I'm merciful to. Now chapter 34 of Exodus, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, what? Steadfast love. There's our word, chesed. Steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping, here's our word again, chesed, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When God declared himself and who he was, he spoke of his character. And one of those character traits that he really wants Moses, the people of Israel, 
and us to understand that He is steadfastly loving to us. Why is that? Why does that need to be drilled into our heads twice? Twice when God tells us who He is. He didn't repeat any of the other ones twice. Why did He have to say it twice when He told us who He is? Here's, here's what God knows about you and I. Remember, He remembers our frame that we're dust. Remember this? He knows that when we sin, we focus in on our sin. And we focus in on us. And we mourn ourselves. And we loathe ourselves. You know, it has a different effect on some people. They, they seem to enjoy their sin. It's only because they've turned so far that they've seared their conscience with a hot iron. When people who have a fear of God sin, we have this terribly rotten spirit in us. And God wants to remind us that he is steadfastly loving and loyal, even to us. God's hesed is seen as Moses pleads with God to forgive the people. Take a look at Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Now, here's what we we notice. When Moses is appealing to God, he's interceding for the people. He's saying, God, forgive them. When Moses does this, he calls out this character trait of God's nature, his Hesed, his steadfast covenant loyalty. Look at verses 17 through 19 of Numbers 14. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please, Pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. In other words, you haven't stopped forgiving them. You've been forgiving them while they were in Egypt, and every step along the way, your steadfast covenant loyalty has been seen. Don't let it stop now. So Moses calls on this character trait of God. David says he will enter God's house by God's hesed. In Psalm 50, excuse me, Psalm 5 in verse 7, he says, I will enter God's house through the abundance of your steadfast love. That's how I'll get there. Not because of my steadfast love, not because of my faithfulness, my righteousness, but because of who you are. That's why I'll be with you. David understood. He understood the gospel even before the gospel was fully unveiled. Take a look, please, at Psalm 36. Psalm 36, beginning in verse 5. Again, David is the penman, and he writes, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Men, man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your chesed 
your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's a verse to write down. That's a verse to write on a 3x5 card or post on your Facebook wall or whatever it is that will help you remember it. God's faithfulness is through the roof. That's, that's what it is. God deals with his people faithfully. God's faithfulness deals with our greatest needs and all the other needs preceding it. Listen to Romans 8.32. It's a familiar passage. Listen to what Paul writes. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He deals with us faithfully. We already saw that he deals with us graciously. He deals with us faithfully. And as we come to the end of Psalm 51.1, we want to notice that God deals mercifully with his people. Look again at Psalm 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The word here in the Hebrew is rachom. Rahom. It, it simply means, in fact, simply is probably not the right word. It means mercy and compassion. With mercy and this pulling away of our sin, this removal of our sin, that concept of mercy that, that takes our sin and, and casts it as far as the east is from the west. There's more to it than just a transaction. We need to be careful that we don't get too letter of the law and two, um, what's, what's the term I'm looking for, when uh, forensic, too detail-oriented and analytical about this transaction as if it's this sterile thing. There's more to mercy, and particularly this word mercy, than just a transaction of removing our sin. There's a, a heartfeltness to it. We call that compassion. You'll remember in Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 15, that Jesus is not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The word there has the idea of feeling with us. He feels with us in our sinfulness. There's a compassion there. It's, this, this is... It really is quite incredible. If you and I were God, I think we'd really struggle to show compassion to rebellious people. Think about what you do when your child does the same thing for the umpteenth time. How much compassion do you show in that situation? Will you forgive them? Yes. But what about the compassion? This is what is so incredible about our God. He's altogether different than we are. He is filled to the full with compassion. I want you to look at a passage of Scripture that will help drive that home. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now you know in Nehemiah 9, 
it's Nehemiah on behalf of the people offering a prayer of confession. We're going to cut into the heart of it, and I'll try to point out every time without saying the word, because I don't want to over-Hebrewize you, but I'll point out the word. It's <laughs> Rahum. Uh, I don't know if I say it right. I said that one right that time. Um, it's mercies. You'll see it come up several times in this section that Nehemiah is uttering to the Lord, beginning in verse 19. You in your great mercies, there it is, did not forsake them, the people of Israel, in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to, uh, to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and people, and, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Sounds pretty good right now, doesn't it? It's like a happy, happy prayer. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands, hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you ignored them. That's the, the good news version. That's not what mine says. Did, did you get that one? It said, you heard them from heaven. And according to your great, what does it say? Mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. You've got good news again until verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you ignored them. That's not what it says. It says you heard them from heaven. And many times you delivered them. That word could be translated redeemed. Delivered them according to your, what? Mercies. And you warned them that in order to turn them back to your law, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commands or commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned the, a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not 
give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Look at this. This is who God is. This is who he is. They turn and they turn and they cry out and he redeems. They turn and they turn and they cry out and he hears. They turn and they turn, they cry out and he hears. He's merciful. This is the God that we go to. He is gracious. He is faithful. He is merciful. How should we approach him? What will he say? Let me try to say it in softer terms. I don't really want God to know exactly what I did or what I thought or what I was... Really, is that going to work out? Maybe I'll come up with this great excuse. Is that going to work out? Who, who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? He knows. Does everyone receive mercy and grace that delivers? Everyone? Does everyone receive that mercy and grace that delivers? All your neighbors? Friends and family? Everyone? I don't think so. I want you to turn to one other passage of Scripture, Proverbs 28. I love to talk about God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God's mercy and God's kindness, His, His, His unending love. I love to talk about them because it, it really tells the story of who He is. But ladies and gentlemen, his grace and his mercy are for those that call upon him. For those that recognize the gravity of their own wickedness. When we start to feel good about ourselves and our efforts, we really have no standing before God. When we start to think, Look how far I've come. Look at, look at how much I've learned. Now we probably don't look at it quite like that or state it quite like that. But if we come to God any differently than the, the parable that Jesus talked about, about the tax collector and the Pharisee, if we don't still recognize that we are spiritual beggars even today, and we're starting to stand upon our own righteousness. Isaiah called those filthy rags and Paul called them dung. Listen to what Solomon, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote. We need this, folks. Men and women, boys and girls, we need this. Verse 13 of Proverbs 28. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will what? What does that tell me that I need to do? I need to be honest with God. I don't want to make up some cockamamie story about how my wife stuck her hand in front of my eyes, so that's why I sideswiped your car. 
I don't want to make up some, some really nifty thought about how I swerved out of the way of a, of a sweet little bunny rabbit and I sideswiped your car. I'm so sorry. Own it. Hey, there was snow on the ground. I thought it would be great. I was doing these donuts. I lost control of the car. I slammed your car. Here's my insurance paperwork. <laughs> that, that's what it is. Tell them the truth. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. You don't have to look at God as some austere person who's going to rain down thunder and lightning and bolts and, and crucify you. How do you know he won't? Because he already crucified his son. His wrath is settled. He's not angry. He's not angry with you. Sometimes we refrain from going to God because we think he's angry with us. Psalm 51.1 helps us to understand that's not him. You're talking about the wrong guy. You're talking about someone else. You're not talking about the God of the universe who, who, who's given us his word. He is gracious and faithful and merciful. So David, after he finally came to recognize the gravity of his sin, he didn't hold back anymore. He said, God, be gracious to me and faithful to me and merciful to me. Out of, out of the abundance of who you are, do what only you can do and give me grace. Come to him. And the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is kind. We should never hesitate to approach him in humility. We should always be ready to confess our sinfulness and our weakness to a God who is ready to pour out his mercy and grace. He already knows everything about you. He knew every single thing you would ever do before he ever decided to save you. Don't tuck tail and run. Be like the prodigal son who comes back and says, ah, I'm not worthy. And you know what he'll do? He will say, that's right, boy. Go, go out in the field and go do some work. I'll give you some food. It's not what he does. He's running out, embraces, puts on the robe and the ring, and, and, and puts on the, the dog. That's a Midwest expression. Puts on the dog, puts on a, a, a feast for his son, because my son was lost now he's found. Is this your God? Is this the one you know? Why can he do this? Why does he demonstrate this kind of steadfast loyalty to us? Because of what Jesus did. It's because of a very fancy term, propitiation. God settled his wrath against my sin through Jesus. He is never going to be angry with me again. Oh, I hope, I hope when we pray and then we get together and we go in our prayer groups, then we walk out the, de the doors here in a half hour from now after we've prayed and all that. I hope you'll leave feeling lifted up about who your God is and how you can approach him with anything and everything. Let's pray together. Help us, Father, to be honest with you because we know how great you are. Help us not to hold back, to hide, 
to manipulate, but to just be frank and honest with you, knowing that you are not angry with us, not because we've earned your favor, but because Jesus has for us. Do your work in our lives, in Jesus' name, amen.